1: Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 14 of Everything Compliance. Everything Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Today we began a two-part series of a recent recording of the Everything Compliance Gang. Today it is Matt Kelly and Jay Rosen. We take things a little bit different today. Each of us start out by throwing out some topics for discussion, and then the rest of the group follows in. Today's podcast is sponsored by Wire Road Studio, where this podcast was recorded. If you're interested in all in musical production, world class mixing, world class mastering, or audio production, I would suggest that you check out the folks at Wire Road Studio. You can find out more about them at their website, wireroadstudios.com. We will include all participants' rants on this episode. Please stay till the very end because I think you will greatly enjoy the rants. They're a lot of fun this week. You will definitely enjoy this episode and thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Everything Compliance. Today we have not four amigos, but tres amigos. We have Matt Kelly, founder of Radical Compliance, Jonathan Armstrong, uh, <clears throat> principal at Quarterly Compliance, principal? well, uh- He'll take worse. And of course, Mr. Monitor himself, Jay Rosen. We're going to turn things uh, a little bit differently today. And so I've asked the panelists to come up with some uh, questions, topics for discussion, and points of interest that we're going to raise. And each person is going to throw out some topics, and then the rest of the panel, including myself, are going to discuss them. At the end, we will have rants, so everybody save a good rant for the end. But I thought, uh, in view of the fact that... uh, Matt, Jonathan, and I are actually live together at the Wire Road Recording Studios in Houston, Texas, and we have Pipe J in from sunny Southern California. We would shake things up a little, even a little bit more. So with that, Matt, uh, you have uh, been thinking about some things that uh, you want to talk about and you want to throw out for the group, so what do you got for us?
0: Sure, so here are my five big ideas, um, probably in no particular order, but... Number one, we have now two FCPA enforcement decisions under the Trump administration, both of which are these declinations to prosecute, uh, because both companies, which first was the Lindy Group and then second was CDM Smith, uh, both companies did follow uh, and live up to the principles of the FCPA pilot program, so they get uh, no actual prosecution no monitor, no penalties. Uh, that's all the good news. They did have to pay uh, ill-gotten profits, which I think for Lindy was $11.2 million, and for CDM was $4 million. They had to give that back up. Um, and of course, whatever costs they had internally to do their own investigation and fulfill the pilot program. So I uh, had two thoughts about that. Number one, Okay, fine. I am very open to the idea of declinations if you live up to the pilot program, but reading through the declination letters, they are scant on useful detail for compliance officers, especially around what did these companies do to get the declination. I understand that there's probably some limits to what the Justice Department will want to say, but to say they fully cooperated in an investigation. They remediated the program. and then what, guys? I mean, you know, can we have something? Uh, if not in a declination, could we have it in a speech from a Justice Department senior official, of which we have very few at the moment because very few have been confirmed or even nominated and whatnot? There's just generally a lack of what's going on there. Uh, Number two, specific, probably more to Jonathan, but for anybody else, I have been thinking a lot these days about the European Union's general data privacy regulation, which is coming into effect in 10 more months, nine more months. And um, okay, so compliance with that rule is going to be a big headache. I get that. But my big question is, Do the regulators themselves know what they're going to do to enforce this rule? Because I could certainly see either extreme being argued that they don't know what they're going to do, so they're not going to enforce it vigorously, or are they going to whack someone with a major fine like the anti-competition people just whacked Google the other week with a fine of, I think, nearly $3 billion? Um, Is it going to be somewhere in between? Who knows, but that really is where the rubber is going to meet the road, and I don't think that we're anywhere near the rubber meeting the road on that. Uh, Third, I'm sure we'll talk about this, would be Hui Chen's departure as in-house compliance counsel for the fraud section of the Justice Department. Uh, Number one, she went there in a very public way, where she basically said that she cannot do her job lecturing companies about poor tone at the top. Uh, If the tone at the top of her organization, being the federal government, is completely off-kilter and off-base, and President Trump is terrible with tone at the top. Uh, So she said, I believe, her exact words were there was a cognitive dissonance, she could no longer stomach it, so she left. Um, Very public. She just spoke aloud what I think a lot of compliance people are privately thinking in their own heads. And uh, other than that, also, though, she did give a lot of interesting detail about the actual guidance they published in February about evaluation of compliance programs, which basically she wrote. Mm -hmm. I did a podcast with her. She talked an awful lot about how it has been not interpreted or understood as she would have provided or preferred. And so she talked to me in a podcast I did about two weeks ago, I think, about that. Um. So how many is that? One, two, three, four. Fourth idea I have. Uh, If we wanted to talk a little bit about tone at the top outside of Washington, we could certainly talk about it in New Jersey, where Governor Chris Christie, um, as I'm sure many Americans know... uh, closed all state parks and beaches over the 4th of July weekend because of a budget standoff, and then he departed for one of these closed state beaches in a governor's summer residence where he had the whole beach to himself and where an enterprising uh, New Jersey media business chartered a private aircraft to fly overhead and take pictures of him. Um, This was not fake news. This is as real as it gets. I saw the photos. He looked like he was having a great time, and it was just, I think, one of the most galling disregards for public interest I've ever seen. I wrote a column about it. I put it up on LinkedIn, which got 16,000 hits within a week. Yes, clearly Chris Christie knows how to touch a nerve. Um, And then later on, this is a late-breaking point if we uh, want to get to it. Today, this afternoon on July 12th when we're recording this, uh, the new chairman of the SEC, Jay Clayton, gave his first-ever public speech, gave it up in New York, Uh, talking a lot about his desire to ease corporate disclosure rules and, wait for it, smooth the path for new companies to achieve IPOs, which seems to be, while not a bad idea, the only thing that we're talking about with SEC regulation at the moment, and um, I was reading that speech earlier, we could talk a little bit about some of the ambitions the SEC might have around corporate compliance, but those are my five, and happy to go from there.
1: So let me start with uh, the Wei Chen and her uh, remarks about the misinterpretation. So I I listened to the podcast. Uh, First of all, thanks for bringing that uh, out. That was a a great source of information. Uh, I hope we can get her to comment more on it. And my initial response was really the following. Um, If I'm an author and I write something, uh, I don't control the reader's interpretation of it. Uh, Leo Tolstoy didn't control his, and she doesn't control how you and I would interpret it. Now, some of her substantive comments were um, that people were utilizing it as a check-the-box exercise, and I certainly uh, would agree with her that it was not designed uh, for that intent, but to if we could pick up from one of the points of the podcast, which was uh, your discussion with her about the number of entries around policies and procedures. Uh, and... You and I, or perhaps others, thought that, well, maybe this is, is, is as important or perhaps even more important. And she said, no, 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 we just happen to have more points there. Well, without contemporaneous commentary about how they interpret it, uh, we're left to interpret it ourselves. And even if it's not the most important, uh, the information there is incredibly for, valuable for the compliance practitioner. And to me, it gave me pause to rethink: did, Do we need to consider more, kind of the backbone, internal controls, written policies and procedures that may have been uh, given less given less uh, thought, um, certainly less intellectual capital over the past couple of years? But um, the the thing that struck me the most, where she said she, her, her greatest goal seemed to be to have the Evaluation of corporate compliance programs document give people pause to think. And I certainly think it did that. And we've had lots of discussions about it, lots of commentary about it. But it's our my opinions are my opinions, your opinions are your opinions, and there's no way for us to know what was in her head unless she tells us. So that you're always going to have people interpreting it <coughs> based upon their own experiences and their own backgrounds. And uh, if if I happen to interpret it in a way that she doesn't, it doesn't mean I have misinterpreted it. It may mean that I've given it my own interpretation. It's still an incredibly valuable and important document. Um, but I, think, I don't think many authors can claim to have readers read something and understand it based the way the author intended. Everyone reads something differently. S- uh, everyone no. reads something differently. That's-
2: Sorry, and I was thinking one of of the points is, isn't it, is that we're certainly getting wrapped up in this in in Europe, that occasionally you get guidance, which is almost, um, it's almost become the holy grail for a lot of corporations, that they can't do things until the guidance appears, and then they can only do what the guidance says. And we lose sight of the fact, don't we, that the law is the law, guidance is guidance. And just to take one of your other themes and sort of stitch it in, this is where things like declinations are important. And this is why almost, you know, it's almost like school maths classes, isn't it, where the teacher says, and I need to show your workings out I need you to show your workings out as well. We don't necessarily need to know that the answer is 379.5 we also need to know how you work that arithmetic through and why we need declinations like that is because the guidance is a skeleton we need that flesh on the skeleton so if we look at things like Morgan Stanley in the US context then we can see that there are sort of to my mind fairly clear guidance on you know how many times you have to touch an individual to get a declination i think the answer is 55 isn't it American 35 family. so we know that we've got 35, to, 35 isn't it well, we know that we've got to have a lot of connections with that individual and do we know that you know, would 55 do it? Then almost certainly if it's if the number's 35. Would two do it? Probably not. And, and guidance is never going to say things like that. It's never going to say the optimum number is 17 touches for every six months. And that's So that's why it's such a shame that the declinations are Let me go back to the, to the guidance
1: because it, she really emphasized another point, which was on the root cause analysis. And this really ties into something you've been talking about over the last couple of years, Matt, which is... Uh, O-O-D-A, I think, the feedback loop.
0: The OODA loop. The OODA loop, yes.
1: where the OODA loop is basically <laughs> where you monitor basically... whatever your process is, but you take that information and then loop it back into your system, hopefully learning from the information you've gathered in the monitor fra- phase and to make your system more efficient going forward. That seemed to be what she was saying, which is, hey, guys, monitor your system. If you have a problem, do a root cause analysis, and then for heaven's sakes, take that information and utilize it to make sure that the problem doesn't happen again. So it really, I thought uh, that part was uh, really an important part for compliance practitioners to and corporations to understand that it's not a static system. It's a dynamic system. But it's a dynamic system because business is dynamic. It's a dynamic system because the information you should obtain from your monitoring is dynamic. And it's dynamic because when you put new uh, information into your system, you may come up with yet uh, another iteration that you hadn't even considered. So she really gave a lot of great information. And the, the, uh, the more I talk about it now, the more I think her thoughts on thinking, may have been the, the key element that I got out of your podcast.
0: You know, I think, uh, I suppose somewhat in Hui Chen's defense, in a, getting back to the guidance itself and where did it come from, Who is it supposed to be for, its audience was supposed to be prosecutors in the fraud section. It is not entirely clear that, except for a, a few strokes of luck earlier this year, this ever would have been public, and we would not even know it existed. Right. But it's out there, but it was geared for prosecutors, prosecuting companies who therefore would have had a set of facts in hand that they are thinking about. Uh, For compliance officers, her broader point about how would you use this now, well, compliance officers do not have the luxury of a specific fact pattern where you can think, this is my mess. Here are the questions. How do I reverse engineer a solution? You have to reverse engineer a system durable enough regardless of what fact patterns may come up down the road that the prosecutors will be acting asking about. And that's harder for us to do, but it's still a very versatile piece of information that people can put to, to good use.
1: Jay, do you have anything? I have, uh, yeah, I have
3: a couple things to add. First of all, um, I'm interpreting Way saying that she wasn't really able to speak upon the principles that she brought up as just the uh, – natural course of her being uh, kept on the sidelines and kept quiet by DOJ. So I think my little in- interpretation is is that I was at, um, I guess, the ABA White Collar Crime when uh, A.G. Sessons addressed the audience, and he was speaking a lot about what to do with the pilot program and what to do with FCPA and Way was in the crowd, but she wasn't allowed to speak on that. So I'm taking her uh, comments a little bit more literally, that not so much as an author not being able to explain to the reader, but an author not being able to publicly address uh, a document that she wrote herself. Um, the other point that uh, every once in a while I get to tie in some uh, entertainment history, so when I was out here in the mm-hmm. late 80s, um, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg wrote a memo about uh, William Conrad's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he tried to really come up with a way to uh, come up with specific benchmarks and almost to come up with a step-by-step way of how we have to do better uh, you know, in the movie business and he was the one who had kind of a vision of creating tent poles and you know, because of this Eisner memo, rather um, Katzenberg memo, uh, we have the state of the box office that we have now. Now, when you look back at this in the late 80s, there was no internet and for you to be able to get this copy, you needed somebody who was either at Disney or at a talent agency and by the time you got your copy of this, Katzenberg memo it was 15th or 20th generation so it's also just interesting how information Matt you said that it was intended internally for the DOJ prosecutors but it got out to the community of ethics and compliance professionals and I just kind of thought when you were speaking about that it it reminded me of the Katzenberg memo almost 30 years ago.
1: So let me, uh, let me take uh, Matt's uh, uh, point on the GDPR and throw in this. Would, you, would it be possible, feasible, or could you even foresee that the European regulators might actually take sort of the SFO approach uh, that they had during uh, uh, after the Bribery Act came in to uh, effect, which is to move a little bit slowly, uh, not move overly aggressively. I think there were critiqued for moving at the speed they did, yet I think now those critics have largely been answered, but could we see some period of both the regulators and the companies fleshing out uh, what this law means, or what do you see?
2: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, my prediction would be that we will see um, almost some initial activity, then nothing, then busy again. And, And here's my logic the way I see it. I think first of all uh, privacy regulators across Europe are already involved in some fairly major investigations so they're investigating you know Google there are investigations into Facebook they are almost certainly I would guess taking a look at Uber so some of these big data handlers I think are already being looked at and there has been some frustration in countries like France and Spain for example that they think they have enough to bring process against some of these corporations, but they don't have the penalties to be an effective deterrent. So my gut feel would be that some of these prosecutions are half worked up already and are sitting in a pending tray because they don't want to bring the case uh, now uh, where the penalty might be. 50,000 euros, they'd rather bring that case in May. And I think some regulators are in it for the long game uh, and they are quite prepared to sit on this thing and have have bigger penalties. So I think we can possibly see that type of activity if I was a betting man, the countries I'd be looking at would be uh, some of the German regulators, Spanish regulator perhaps, perhaps France, perhaps even Italy that's become more active. And the other point I think to make, relating to your point Matt is is we've already seen a real increase in activity in all sorts of different jurisdictions and of course the existing privacy law in terms of enforcement is in many respects similar there isn't there's maybe 30% new under GDPR the fines are very different, but the actual laws aren't substantially that different. You know, If you lose data now, that's a bad thing. If you lose data in May 2018, that's a bad thing too. And it's an equally bad thing. The law on keeping data secure is almost identical now as uh, in 2018, just the penalties are higher. And obviously, you have to report. So we already have a fairly clear indication uh, of how I think enforcement will work. So I did an interview at the end of last year with the then head of policy at the ICO. The ICO sort of—I mean, to the earlier point—they do show their workings. They do show it as a mathematical exercise. So if you look at most of their big enforcement activity, they'll say, "Well, the good things that the corporation did, which which." Uh, uh, point to a lesser fine are the following. The bad things that they did which point to a higher fine are the following. So if you look at recent enforcement action, fly B would be an example. You can see pretty clearly what pushes the fine up and what brings it down. So you can then give clear guidance to corporations saying actually training, you need training. It has to be re- re- renewed every two years as a minimum. One year would be great. You can get that level of certainty through through looking. And then as I say, there is this a formula almost that works, and and speaking to people at the ICO, I know that that's a formula that they think is robust going into GDPR, and I know it's also a formula that other jurisdictions are interested in, in terms of enforcement. And then just one other point to make is bear in mind, of course, that some of the new GDPR uh, provisions like data breach reporting in 72 hours are already law in the Netherlands. So the Netherlands brought in its law in January 2016 and things like um, right to be forgotten, uh, security breach reporting in, in 72 hours, etc., have been road tested there and again my understanding is that regulators from various other countries have been on away days or away weekends or away weeks to the netherlands to sit with the team there and to look not only at how their processes will change but also how their organizations will change they need less people to answer the phone and more people to deal with enforcement Why? because people are coming to them they don't so you know i, the, I have a question
0: about the how the mechanisms of enforcement would actually work Would it be the case that if different national regulators are enforcing with different zeal, even though it's the same law, could that lead companies to start to color their decisions about some things, like off the top of my head, hypothetical, but – Let's say Poland is not imposing gigantic fines, so therefore I'm going to start putting my data centers in Poland. Yeah. In case I do have a breach, I'm not going to get totally whacked like I would in France or in the Netherlands. Is it, could it work out like that?
2: It's already working out like yeah. that. I mean, we, we've seen one U.S. corporation that's involved in some fairly high-level data sweating, I should now say formerly US corporation, because of course now it's a Maltese entity. Um, and so I think we're already seeing stuff like that happening, that people are picking who they want to be their lead regulator post 2018. and And there's some complexity to that rule. In very general terms, enforcement of GDPR is done in country by a nation, uh, a national regulator. Uh, there's what's called a consistency mechanism so there's a a new body will be created in brussels which can say actually i think your fines are on the high side i think your fines are on the low side and try and build some aggregation in will that work in practice who knows Uh, there's also meant to be something called a one-stop-shop mechanism so if my principal activity is in the uk then the uk is a regulator principal activities in Spain, Spain's a regulator, and complaints that are received from other jurisdictions are directed towards that regulator. I'm deeply sceptical whether that will work in practice, particularly in the business-to-consumer environment, but at least that's that's something. But the other thing I think that will bring consistency to fines, which we mustn't forget, and this is where it becomes a long game, is that uh, eventually... The the track record in antitrust is that most people appeal their fines and their track record is pretty good when they appeal. The commission by no means always wins. So I think this is why I think there'll be an initial burst of activity, then quiet, then another burst uh, of big cases. And why I think that'll be the case is I think regulators will want to get those second wave cases really well worked up, really sound, because I think uh, prudent regulators will expect that that is going to be appealed, that it's going to go through the national courts, and then ultimately these bigger cases are going to end up at the ECJ. And that probably means that we don't get certainty on things like finding mechanisms, how that will work, how consistency will work until I'm guessing 2013-2014. So it's definitely going to be a long, a long game, I think, and we're going to see all sorts of um, uh, uh, you know, nuances along the way. And I think we are going to see some vastly different attitudes to fines uh, a, across Europe as well. I think that's going to be unhelpful. So
1: could we maybe take up uh, your last point, Matt, on the, uh, what you wrote about, I think you called it private privilege,
0: Um, Oh, with Chris Christie, Christie.
1: yes. And And I want to tie tie it it into into uh, one of the things that I've been thinking about, so maybe take it in a little bit different direction. Uh, Last weekend in the New York Times, there was an article uh, uh, in the business section uh, by an unnamed U.S. CEO who said that his company had moved to Plan C. And Plan C was, we're going to hang on for the next three and a half years. Uh, We're not going to expand. We're not going to contract. We're going to continue to do what we're doing. But uh, the Trump... um, the the promises that he heard to the business community doesn't think will occur uh he doesn't think congress can get anything through he uh he sees now a retrenchment of uh, u.s business leadership or u.s governmental leadership uh, for businesses around the world so that uh, his company is just going to retrench now and the the point on chris christie it seems to be now that we have less ethical leadership in our government Uh, than we previously had. Previously we we seem to have more criticism of business ethics and business leaders than governmental leaders. That that seems to have flipped. But do you see really the questions that you raise uh, about uh, Christie and the perception of privilege, do you see those bleeding over into the business community and the business community embracing that type of uh, action?
0: Um, Well, a couple of different points. First, to the CEO who said, we're just going to hang on, he is not alone. I have heard the same thing from others who talk with CEOs and work with them on consulting around regulation. Uh, and several of these the CEOs and boards have specifically said, we are not going to get on the deregulatory train if this is going to turn around in the other direction in 2020. Um, we can talk about politics another day. I don't think Donald Trump is going to be on the ticket in 2020. but. Regardless, it's a very valid point that uh, why do you want to do this if you don't know that the environment will be like that by 2021, or it's probably not going that way in Europe and other emerging markets. It is not going that way in Canada, which is our largest trading partner. Um, So first off, I think that the idea that we just want to pause and let this uncertainty, we'll call it that, Uh, That's going on out of the White House, you know, that's not a bad idea, and it is not an uncommon idea Secondly About Chris Christie specifically what I thought the important point there is that when you see someone Exercising what I called the perception of undeserved privilege Undeserved Undeserved and that's that's key because there are certain privileges that are deserved Um, I don't necessarily mind a CEO flying around on the company plane uh, I don't mind the CEO flying first class if he or she needs to get a lot of rest and go do an investor presentation and save the company and everybody's jobs. Sure, give him first class. Um, so it's also the perception because I'm not saying necessarily that they will see undeserved privilege as it, it actually is true. They just they think they see it. They think that it's undeserved, and they think this guy or woman, but usually it's a guy, uh, this guy gets to do something that I can't do, and that's not fair. That's what this really is. That's exactly what Chris Christie did. He had this beach all to himself, and there was one famous photo from these aerials that the advanced New Jersey media company took, uh, where it showed the public beach that was open, crowded with people, and then you could draw a line as to where the state beach started, And it was empty and as pristine as something you would see in the middle of nowhere in the south pacific with about a half a dozen little figures in the middle and that was chris christie and his family and that's not fair period um if the beaches are closed to the public last time i checked a sitting governor is a member of the public Dude, you can either do your job or you can stay at home. But that's that is what people are going to say. It's like, why can't I do that? He doesn't deserve that. He's not doing his job. That's what they're going to think. That's what they're perceiving. Now, in this case, they're perceiving it for real because there's the photo. But that will feed into employees. You know, when we talk about uh, why they commit fraud and the fraud triangle, the three reasons there is pressure. There are opportunity is another one, but the third leg of the fraud triangle is rationalization. I know it sounds kind of like fraud, and maybe I shouldn't do it, but actually, when I think about it, really, you know what? It's not fraud in this case. I'm entitled to do this, so I'm going to do it. This undeserved privilege that people see, well, you know, if the governor can do it, man, then my job kind of stinks and I need a little extra money here, so I'm just going to take this out of petty cash. It's not like people are ever going to miss it. He certainly doesn't care. And then we're off to the races. That's where rationalization comes from. It's from stuff like that. Um, So I do think...
3: If he wasn't the lame duck governor, do you think he would have been more concerned with the optics of his action?
0: Oh, that's a very good question. I don't know. Um, I do remember thinking, you know, in some parallel universe out there, Chris Christie is the sitting attorney general, and he wonderfully managed a transition for the Trump campaign, and we already have health care reform done, we already have tax reform done, and Trump's approval ratings are up in the mid-50s somewhere. I don't know where that universe is, but here in this universe of ours, Chris Christie got kicked to the curb. I think he is, seems to be a bitter man who is just counting down until he leaves. You're right. He doesn't have anything to lose. Um, as shocking as this was, I was even more surprised that several days later, he did an audition on a sports radio drive time where a caller called in and people with children compliance officers in the room, you might want to send them out. But caller called up Chris Christie and said, you were just a fat ass on the beach. And Chris Christie said, you are just a bum and a communist from Montclair. <laughs> Sitting governor. And this is what he's doing. Never mind that he's on the payroll. And maybe he should be doing his job in New Jersey because Jersey has a lot of problems, not just the state budget. But um, it's beyond the pale of what he was doing there. And I don't know what he's thinking. So, Jay, you've got an excellent point. Maybe if he wasn't a lame duck, he might conduct himself a little bit better. But this is just the worst bit of knuckle-dragging tone at the top I think I've seen in 20 years of writing about this stuff.
1: So, Jay Rosa, do you have anything, uh, your points you want to share with us? Uh, sure do. So, uh, this is kind of uh, jumping off of both what um,
3: Matt and uh, Jonathan introduced already. Uh, first point is, in light of uh, yesterday's breaking news of the uh, Don Jr. memos, I'm just wondering uh, if you, if the learned panel here can speak about how campaign finance laws mirror or may differ from the FCPA. Uh, Specifically, uh, my interpretation of campaign finance is that it's illegal for foreign nationals to donate things of value in connection with an election, and it's similarly illegal for people to solicit or accept a contribution or donation from a foreigner. So I'd love to hear something about that. Next thing, uh, and when we were just talking about tone at the top and Christie and, um, you know, bad examples to set, uh, I'd like to pose to the group whether or not this uh, Russian collusion investigation might reveal the ultimate FCPA violation. Uh, another department, departure from the government that uh, seems to mirror what happened with Wei Chen is Walter Schaub's departure from the OGE. And um, I'd like to talk about exactly what OGE's remit is and uh, why it worked for the last 40-plus years, but now it seems to have fallen on uh, deaf ears with the Trump administration. And finally, uh, dovetailing with Matt's question about a slow first half for FCPA enforcement, and in light of the just-released Gibson-Dunn FCPA mid-year report, uh, does the current climate or lack of vigorous enforcement provide a perfect storm for companies to look the other way if they fall off the ethics compliance wagon? And do we think that companies are still being vigilant in the space despite of the perception of decreased employment? So uh, if anyone wants to jump on any of those four, I I think we'd have some, uh, be able to fill a few minutes.
2: I could start on the look the other way. Uh, in that I've had an interesting trip here to Houston, but without naming names, one of the interesting discussions with me has been the interest from some US corporations in understanding more about the UK bribery legislation and Saponder. And when you drill down, Saponder is the French equivalent of the UK Bribery Act, so this new legislation in France. And in some respects, Saponder particularly is interesting and I, I, I think we talked about it briefly before but in some respects the genus of saponder is that the US was perceived as being overactive in its regulation of Fen- French corporations and I think people looked at and I think all of them were, had Houston connections actually but people looked at the uh, the US's enforcement action against French corporations with a presence here, Total being an example <laughs> and, and they thought you know, that $1 billion or whatever the number is would pay for X number of hospitals in France, would pay for Y number of schools. So in part the legislation was France trying to do the right thing with critical ACD reports, but in part it was this let's onshore the fines rather than offshore them. And why I think that's been interesting, this trip round, is people are wondering if just as the vacuum in French enforcement was filled by the US, will there come a day when a vacuum in US enforcement is filled by France, the UK, Canada maybe, other jurisdictions? Because the US's excuse, if you like, for getting involved in this space a, a lot of times is their domestic, their home regulator ain't doing anything, mm-hmm. so we've got to. So will we get to the stage where France, for example, thinks now that the U.S. enforcement has dropped, let's have a crack at some U.S. corporations because their home regulator you isn't I
0: want to pick up on one point that Jay said. Uh, just to be fair for FCPA uh, the FCPA world. Jay, you talked about the the lack of vigorous enforcement we've seen. To be honest, we don't know that. We've only seen a lack of uh, results compared to last year, where we were churning out FCPA settlements like they were going out of style. Now, maybe they are going out of style, but we don't know that yet, because it can take an awful long time to compile an FCPA case. Um, but my concern is that if we're going to shift more to declinations, again, I'm not opposed to that, but when you look at the declination letters and try and deduce what exactly did these companies do to get that, we don't know. We know that they met the stipulations of the pilot program. Well, all these letters say, with minor differences in detail, all two letters we now have, are just that they self-disclosed, they cooperated in the investigation, they remediated the conduct, and in both the cases of Lindy and CDM Smith, they fired all of the guilty employees. That's all we know, but we don't know any more. So when you look at Lindy and you look at CDM Smith, they the facts of these two cases are considerably different, and yet we wind up with the same outcome and the same sort of language that isn't terribly specific, so we don't have much for us to go on. Um, And I know people will say, well, declination letters were around in the Obama administration. Declination letters have always been nonspecific. What has changed? We have new leaders in the Justice Department and in the White House who haven't really made a public commitment that we're going to enforce this. We can have some very cynical interpretations here that these companies are not doing great things with their compliance program to get a declination. They may be doing the bare minimum, and the Justice Department doesn't really care because they're too busy with their violent crime priorities or illegal immigration priorities. So therefore, eh, yeah, sure, we'll just—here's the declination. We don't know. But you can make a very good argument that Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump do not care to enforce the FCPA. They don't have a assistant AG in charge of the criminal division. The deputy assistant AG, who's been there for six months— is up for a nomination to the federal bench. And I don't fault him for going because that's a great job. But we don't have any constancy of leadership right now who could set out, stand up, give a policy statement and say, the letters may look vague, but here's what we want. We we don't have anything. We have vague letters and no greater context of what's going on. It's a mighty wide wedge for somebody to feed a very cynical sort of attitude about compliance in we don't know.
3: Tom, let me, let me ask you a follow-up there. Um, in the past, when we really tried to dis- stack, dissect uh, DPAs and NPAs, there tends to be a lot more level of detail. And I know you're always talking about that there's a certain negotiation that goes on between the company and the government to reveal what was done. And the language is often highly negotiated do we almost see a backlash, and this is swung 180 degrees to the other direction, that the DOJ chooses not to, um, you know, opine on what's happened, and this is to the benefit of the company, or is the company saying, look, if you're going to put me out there as having uh, issued a declination, but I'm still going to have to have a disgorgement, or I may have a penalty, the exchange for that is that there's going to be um, – limited uh, Transparency into what we did to win the declination.
1: Yeah, that's a great point Jay because uh, When we do have declinations with disgorgement, that's when we've received the limited information we've received There have been declinations granted since the pilot program came into effect where there was no disgorgement It was a truly a dropping or not Pursuing any charges, and we didn't get any information about how those occurred. So um, that, that could be a part of it. There's going to be some limited information released. Uh, I guess I see it, Matt, as an evolution. Um, the uh, Department of Justice has now had six, I think it's six uh, declinations. Uh, since the pilot program came into effect, and we're getting a little bit more information. I thought the last two gave us just a scintilla more of information. Uh, Nevertheless, it seemed to me that uh, it was a little bit more than we had received from the uh, last fall's declinations. Uh, But on the numbers, um, 2016 was the greatest year in FCPA enforcement ever. Uh, From February 1 to March 1, we had 13 cases, uh, in two thousand and fifteen, we had ten cases. So the the numbers go up and down all the time, yeah. and simply because we haven't seen vigorous enforcement yet, doesn't mean that we won't see vigorous enforcement, or at least it's it's it, we can't point to that as an indicator. Um, the FBI guys will still tell us they've got 100 cases in the pipeline they're investigating. I think Dis, Dick Casson's numbers indicate a, a similar number are still being investigated by the Department of Justice. So uh, I think it's really perhaps too early to say uh, that um, enforcement's going to drop off. But if I could maybe tie that into Jonathan's point in his query, that, uh, yes, I do think Sapontu uh do. Uh, and, 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 uh, that's right. I come
2: here with my foreign ways. Uh,
1: a dose for you Texans um, out there. Uh, I think that was te- in response to Total and Alstom and some other cases. Nevertheless, uh, the other point, though, is the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission over the past five years have worked very hard to create an international cadre of both corruption, anti-corruption and anti-bribery investigations and investigators, and investigative t- techniques, and now prosecutors. Obviously, Brazil is the best example of that so far, but I think um, the Department of Justice, uh, it's not that these companies are going to take away or take from the U.S. I think the U.S. may be tacitly ceding some of these investigations back to these these countries and uh, giving them the ability or opportunity, rather, to bring some enforcement actions, get their feet on the ground, and have truly a more global Uh, anti-corruption enforcement uh, uh, regime literally across the world. So uh, I don't yet see uh, any of the negatives uh, from this, except for companies that now uh, really face truly global enforcement and uh, all of the difficulties that may bring from multiple enforcement agencies. Um, And, you know, the French finally have stepped up and and passed this law, and hopefully they will uh, enforce it um, along with uh, the SFO going forward.
0: Can I raise one more point about these declination letters? This, this, this will be a, maybe a mini rant. I don't want to get ahead, but it's a little <laughs> early for it. I'll keep it brief. I know that there are some people out there who will think that, you know, we say they got no punishment. Well, wait a minute. They just forked over 11 million and 4 million in ill-gotten profits and disgorgement. That is not punishment. When my son trashes his room or to a better metaphor, if one of his friends comes over and this third party trashes the room on his behalf and I make them clean it up, that is not punishment. That is cleaning up the mess you made. That is what giving disgorgement is, in my opinion. Now, if I made him clean up his room and then also docked his allowance, that is a monetary penalty and that is a punishment. But Again, I just I don't see how giving up the money you earn from bad behavior you never were supposed to do in the first place—that is not punishment. And when I relate these things back to exercises of personal misconduct, usually of my son, um, suddenly these moral questions become much more clear in my mind. And that's all I'm going to say about it.
2: Okay. There's a couple of differences though, isn't it? I mean, um, I think it would be an interesting experiment, and I recommend that you do this when you head back to Boston. Try experimenting with also making your son pay about $100 million worth of attorney fees in connection with the cleanup activity. Um, maybe that works. And, and, and I suspect in some respects that's... I, I know, you know, I've spoken to CEOs who've been involved in that type of activity. and. Whilst we might think they come out on a level, I don't think they ever do. I mean, a, a good attorneys are expensive. There's also the possible diminution in share value. They've got to, at the very least, go along and explain to, to analysts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I've got another open question, though, on, on Jay's point, and this isn't meant to sound jingoistic. But is the DPA system in the UK better where we have to get a judge involved? Now obviously in the UK that isn't a certain result because the SFO, for example, the other other prosecutors could say it isn't in the public interest to prosecute period, they don't have to necessarily give details on that, but if they're trying to do a DPA then they have to go along persuade a judge that it's the right thing to do, the judge that's been hearing these cases in the UK, all been heard by the same judge, is obviously wanting quite a bit of evidence and giving a fairly detailed judgment as to why he allowed the deal through. And is that a better system going forward to take away any suggestion of political influence on the process? So as to
1: the transparency issue, I would say absolutely. Anytime you have judicial scrutiny and judicial commentary about their scrutiny. Uh, I think it's a positive thing. I think that Judge Levinson has done a fabulous job in articulating his reasons for the approval, his thought processes for the approval, laying out the facts and the law and his rationale. The uh, only question I have about the British system is, if you have a judge who is part of the group that crafts the dpa is it appropriate to have that same judge commenting on it and i don't uh i know that was part of the original process but what i don't know from reading judge levinson's uh opinions as to how much input he actually had into the formal structure of the dpa on the reviewing it Reviewing the law and the facts and reporting out why he's approved it. I think it's been, uh, he's done an excellent job. I think it's been a fabulous resource for compliance practitioners literally across the globe. Uh, And I think it's been a welcome addition to the uh, DPA practice. and other breaking news today, we had the uh, HSBC uh, decision out of the Second Circuit about whether their uh, DPA would be released or partially released or released with, with actions in the Second Circuit, overturned the uh, sitting federal judge who would order that release. So we don't have that available to us in the United States. Uh, so I, I think it's a great process with a caveat. I I do question whether somebody's part of the process should be opining on that part of that process that they're involved with.
0: I, I, while I do see the merits of it as a practical matter, it's not going to happen in this country, even if it is a good idea. And there are a lot of thoughts about it where it is a good idea, but I just, I don't ever see the day coming where that's going to be a standard here.
1: Jay, let me get back to to one of your questions, and I have to say I am, uh, have zero knowledge about foreign donations uh, to political campaigns in the U.S., so I don't have any thoughts uh, one way or the other on what that might mean.
2: I should make full disclosure in that I was outside the Time Warner Center when Obama was uh, uh, running, when he'd started to run, and they had some really nice badges that I thought would look good uh, on my daughters going to school. And I um, was asked if I wanted a badge and I said I would, and they said, could you give us a dollar for the badge? and obviously I'm mean as well as English and I said I'd love to give you a dollar but I believe I'm prohibited because you have a ban on foreign donations to political campaigns and I was assured by the Obama uh, representative, there that that didn't actually matter, and that and so, she took um, two dollars from. Talk about me. sloppy no so, new customers. Um, oh, come <laughs> on. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't. I didn't want some future inquiry to find those badges in my daughter's bedrooms, not having made a full disclosure. Yeah. You know, I I'm like can't
0: I can't offer an opinion about the legalities of these donations, but or uh, not of the donations, but of what. The Trump campaign seems to have done, but again, on an abstract level, this gets back to this perception of undeserved privilege. I'm pretty sure if I tried to do something like that, uh, the FBI would be knocking on my door. And we haven't really necessarily seen them knocking yet on Donald Trump Jr.'s door, although they may well start knocking very soon. Uh, But it does feed into this general perception that Trump and his immediate family seem to believe that rules do not apply to them. And there's a reason why his approval ratings are somewhere puttering around 40% and can't seem to get up, and I would not be surprised if they go down even lower. Um, but all of this, if you abstracted the details a bit to make it more about a case of corporate misconduct, where a senior executive knew what he did and didn't tell anybody, where he made public statements directly to the contrary, where the CEO then fired the investigator in-house uh, who is looking at this, No, there's absolutely no way the Justice Department wouldn't string that company up from the light post. And this is exactly what the Trump campaign and Donald Trump and his immediate family have been doing. I'm hard-pressed to see how this turns out very well for the president.
3: Yeah, I think the thing that I was keying in on more was the, uh, the, the term of art there that they're saying things of value. And if we, you know, further on, the thing of value here that was... Supposedly catching Donald Jr.'s interest was uh, information that could be used against the other campaign. And, you know, hey, this stuff sounds pretty good. And if you can get it to me towards the end of the summer, even better. He loved it. Yeah. Yeah. So that thing of value is what we talk a lot about. Um, I mean, isn't that written into the actual FCPA that if you gain an advantage or a thing of value, it doesn't have to be money that's proffered, but it could be information, it could be a patent, but it could be a thing of value.
1: So the um, US political campaign contribution law really turns on a direct quid pro quo. And um, the uh, former governor of Virginia who was convicted has conviction overturned. It was overturned because there was not a direct quid pro quo. And I don't know if that holds under foreign donations or not. But let me pick up on the, uh, uh, I would love that, email. Uh, our good friend Doug Cornelius had a great blog post today where uh, he basically paraphrasing, uh, if, you, if, if you can write it, or excuse me, if you can say it, don't write it. If you can uh, give a nod, don't say it. If you can give a wink, don't nod. Yeah. And uh, that uh, really turns on the point of don't putting stupid stuff in emails. And <laughs> that's a great lesson for the uh, the corporate world as well. Jay, the uh, uh, OGE, I was wondering if you might be able to lay a little background as to what the OGE did or, or does or did perhaps under the prior administrations and why you think now that uh, Walter Schaub's departure is so meaningful.
3: Well, uh, the OGE is the Office of Government Ethics, and uh, as a new administration uh, comes into the White House and Uh, There's the turnover between the old uh, administration and the new. The OGE is responsible for helping vet these uh, candidates from an ethics point of view. So there was, as you can imagine, a lot of pushback uh, from November until when the new administration started in January because the OGE was asking for certain information, such as, you know, tax returns, and just to make sure that if you had a business interest, that may be a conflict of interest, and you know, just to use the obvious, if you play golf at your course uh, every Saturday and Sunday, or if you hold a gala at your hotel that's built in a former post office, those are ways that you can uh, potentially run afoul of the Mullian's Law, and so we um, Walter Schaub was asking the administration to comply, and um, my question is, is I guess since um, Eisenhower and Nixon and Johnson and everyone else between from the last 40 to almost 50 years, um, they complied with uh, what the OGE was looking for, and this administration hasn't. Um, one thing that is different is that we do not have a career politician uh, sitting at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, we have a, a CEO who is maybe or definitely politically unsophisticated and does not know the ways of how to drain the swamp. But as Matt just said a few minutes ago, if any CEO of a company went through the shenanigans that have purportedly happened, they'd be strung up and the shareholders would throw them out. So um I guess that's a little bit of my disconnect is if OGE has no uh, teeth in their rulings, um, it makes sense that Walter Shaw had to leave because he felt kind of like way felt that they were no longer able to uh, make a dent and to really um, help ethics and compliance uh, be observed in this new administration.
1: So I'll start on that. Uh, First of all, um, the, um, Let me unpack that a little bit, Jay, because part of the OGE effort is not just the first family, but it's the broader administrative, the executive branch. And in this administration, we had a large number of people coming from the private sector over into the executive branch. Uh, That can be done. uh, Typically, uh, you have more career politicians who have gone through years and years of a vetting process. Uh, We didn't have that in this situation. When you couple that with the lack of preparation that the Trump campaign had to bring in people uh, to staff the administration, uh, they did very little vetting on their own. So even if under prior administrations you would uh, typically vet a candidate for a post in the executive branch extensively, and so by the time it got to where the OGE would have to look at it, Either uh, they had been approved or not approved by the campaign staff, if a waiver had to be obtained, that waiver would have been obtained during the vetting process. And by waiver, I mean an ethical waiver of some sort of potential conflict of interest. None of that happened, so there was no process in place. So OGE was literally overwhelmed by the uh, new uh, staffing of the administration from uh, uh, new staffing on the executive branch uh, by the administration from the private sector. If I can separate that out from the first family, I think that's an equally important thing to for people to understand about the OGE. The second part, though, is on the first family, it's pretty clear that Trump has uh, always acted as if the rules don't apply to him. And he did that in business, and he's doing that now, and that he wasn't going to follow any of the uh, prior pronouncements from the OGE, and if I can even tie it further back into Wei Chen, I think all of this sort of s- shows that, in large part, the rules in Washington worked because people follow those rules. And uh, Trump has made clear he's not following any rules. Uh, he doesn't care. He, he, he won't even follow his own rules. He'll change uh, from day to day, sometimes uh, w- within a 24-hour news cycle. And... When you have people who will not follow established norms uh, and you have no way to mechanism to enforce those norms, either in a court of law or in uh, in England, something like this might lead to a prime minister uh, having to either fall or stand for re-election. That is not available in the U.S. system. So there's very few checks uh Uh, Once uh, an executive comes in, and uh, even if you say Congress is a check, they're obviously not doing their job either in this. So um, these established norms of our democracy really work because people respect our democracy and respect that that they will follow those norms, and Trump's made clear he ain't following anything. Um, And unfortunately, we don't even know what he's following. uh, So that's what's leading to this period of instability uh, that uh, we have highlighted a couple of times today. So that's really, uh, in large part, what I see. But I really do want to make a differentiation between the staffing of the executive branch from people from private business, where there was really no process for vetting them prior to uh, Trump being elected in November. And that is a large part of what the OGE has had to deal with, and I think was also part of uh, Schaub's frustration. You
0: know, I I will just raise two points. Um, One, I... I do believe I read somewhere that Schaub claims he left because he had a job opportunity too good to refuse where he's going to be the CEO of, I believe it's called the Campaign Legal Center. Uh, Don't hold me to that, but he at least publicly was saying that this was a great job. He couldn't pass it up. on a certain level, I could imagine that that is true, because he probably would be able to then keep needling away at good ethics in the Trump administration, which is not going to be an easy task, but he did seem like somebody who would be suited to it. On the other hand, maybe that is just a smokescreen, and he really just had it with Donald Trump. I, I wouldn't doubt that either. Uh, and the more important point, of course, is that we're all following the Walter Schaub fan page on Facebook, I assume, right? Because there is one, I am a member of it, along with at least several hundred people, Uh, and we regularly have uh, pronouncements on that page about Walter Schaub in the news and a few photos and whatnot. So everybody, go to your Facebook page, look it up, Walter Schaub. Solidarity, I think, is the name of it. You can find it.
1: Jay, um, we're going to move to rants now, and since uh, you haven't had uh, much chance to speak, we thought maybe you could lead us off with uh, a good Jay Rosen rant. (laughs)
3: Well... I've been trying to organize this one in my brain, so uh, maybe you can fix it in editing, Tom. But um, last I checked, you're a Houston uh, Astros fan. You support the Rockets, and you're just as much as a Texas homer as I am a Red Sox person. But regardless of what team we support, we still believe in ethics and compliance and that it's a good thing not to bribe people, and it's a good thing to have a safe world for our daughters to grow up in. But uh, some pundit recently suggested that people's position on the FCPA could be highly colored by whether they vote Democratic or Republican, or furthermore, whether or not they contribute to a certain party. And I believe part of the cornerstone in America is that we can believe what we want, we can vote what we want, and we can do what we want. And I think, to uh, pick up that other word that you guys have been picking up, it's chicken shit to say that somebody's opinion on bribery or the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act or ethics or compliance could be colored by who they vote for or who they support in an election.
0: We're going to need a parental advisory on this podcast. (laughs) This time around. Wow.
1: Well said. Well said, Jonathan. Well, uh, Tom,
2: thank you for inviting us to this studio, which I believe has also been used by Beyonce. So, um, and thanks to the gallery. So, um, so I want to say, in terms of politics, things are crazy right now. They're just crazy right now, and. There's no better illustration that's fresh in my mind than I went into a deli in downtown Houston on Sunday for something to cool off, actually. And a guy said to me, literally, I'm waiting in line. And a guy said to me, "Um, Brexit's a good thing, isn't it? Great news, Brexit. And my response was, I'm not so sure. And I then got a rant to tell me I was a wet liberal, I had to get with the program, and I had to study things a bit harder. And then he just left the, the deli with the admonition delivered to me. And I think in some respects, it's, it's the same thing that Jay's just talked about. We just have this complete binary view of politics now. I yearn for the days when politicians I then hated were in charge. You know, we under the, I know it's hard to say the golden days of Tony Blair already, but in the end of the major administration of the UK, in the beginning of the Blair administration, there wasn't a lot to choose between the parties. You'd often sit down with people who uh, had exactly the opposite view and you'd say, yeah, I like that policy from your guy and this policy from my guy, and you'd have a civilised discussion. But there are elements in our society now that think you're either in or you're out. Mm-hmm. There's no room for debate anymore. If you express a mildly different view in what I hope was a mildly pleasant manner, you get told you're a you know, wet liberal or a jerk or whatever and the conversation is closed down. So my rant is I yearn for the days when things weren't so polarized, when things weren't so binary. And I think it's only when we have that day that we can have a rational discussion about political issues, that we'll have more of a coming together of our nations, more unity, and actually I think we'll have better policies as a result when people are coming together and trying to get some consensus the uh, senate hearings were talking about that today as the answer to issues like encryption and I think ordinarily that is the case when we get better together and talk about stuff we get a better result than if we just shout at each other from rooftops
0: Uh, I would agree I do think that uh, the idea to make your stance on anti-bribery or corporate ethics dependent on your political affiliation is ridiculous we have enough polarization and politicization in this country
3: like enough
0: you know bribing people is bad i'm just going to call it that i've voted democrat i've voted republican it's been bad no matter who i voted for and certainly you know you look at somebody like um paul mcnulty former deputy attorney general in the bush administration No wet noodle liberal at all. He was very strong and aggressive on FCPA enforcement. He remains so to this day. He's a wonderful guy. Uh, Andrew Weissman, who I don't even exactly know how liberal he may or may not be, but number one, he worked in the Obama administration. Number two, he worked in the Bush administration. I mean, he went back and forth. And there were times that he worked in the private sector, and when he came into fraud section as chief. I think that was about 2012 or so. I wrote a column questioning whether he could do that, whether his belief in the FCPA enforcement was sincere when he had already been paid by others to write uh, legal arguments against it or to water it down. And Tom, you called me out on that. And I remember that. And you were right, and Andy Weissman was right. And I was wrong on that. So I think this uh, this nonsense about – You know, making this a partisan issue is ridiculous. The only other quick item I will bring up, uh, not even quite a rant, but more like a quizzical look at this issue. Uh, I did want to note that uh, the SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, gave his inaugural speech today where he talked an awful lot about what he wants for SEC uh, regulatory oversight. So he did not mention the FCPA. He did mention vigorous enforcement, but it seemed to tilt more to the idea of investors fleecing mom-and-pop retail investors, which is certainly something that – or companies committing fraud against retail investors. That's a good enforcement priority. I don't know that he deliberately remained silent on the FCPA. He certainly couldn't talk about everything all the time, but he didn't mention that. Uh, He did talk an awful lot about relaxing corporate disclosure rules. He talked uh, about – making companies go public more easily, giving them a shorter path. That is a code word for let's see if we can roll back some SOX protections around internal controls. A lot of talk like that, not a whole lot of specifics yet. I'll be curious to see how this goes. And as I've said before, roll back SOX all you want. It is not going to affect the IPO trends in this country, which are headed down for very different reasons.
1: So I'm going to rant about the Houston Astros. The Houston Astros have the best record in Major League Baseball after uh, the All-Star break. Uh, For those of you who may have forgotten, the Astros from 2011 to 2013 had the worst record in baseball for three consecutive years, Uh, over 100 losses uh, in each season, 324 losses in three years, clearly went in the tank. What that provided them was top draft round picks uh, in the Major League Baseball draft. And so they got some really good uh, young talent, but they have melded that talent and wedded that talent with an interesting big data dynamic. And that was, this year they are on track to be the third team in the history of Major League Baseball who has led the uh, majors in home runs and had the least number of strikeouts. The Astros have come to value contact hitting and seeing contact hitting as the way to win games. And win games. They have done. They are on track to win 108 games uh, this year. Uh, that would be the most ever by the Astros. The uh, largest uh, our number of wins was 103 uh, back in 2000. Excuse me, 1999. Uh, whether they go anywhere in the playoffs is obviously an open question. But uh, I'm going to throw out some love and rant uh, about my Houston Astros. It's been a great run. Uh, they won uh, 19-1 to in the last game before the um, All-Star break. So uh, it's been fun watching. I don't know if it's going to last, but I'm going to ride it out as long as uh, I can. So, gentlemen, uh, with that, uh, I want to thank you guys for coming, obviously, to speak tomorrow to the uh, Greater Houston Business and Ethics Roundtable. But this has just been a ton of fun. So, uh, Jay, uh, since you're the one... Uh, Uh, Piped in, you want to take us home today?
3: Sure. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, Matt Kelly, uh, founder of Radical Compliance, and Jonathan Armstrong, a supporter of those professional athletes who play rounders, (laughs) who is also from Cordery Compliance. I'm Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, and we'd like to thank you for joining us on this episode of Everything Compliance.
1: This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. If you've listened to this podcast on iTunes, please rate our podcast as it would help our rankings and get out the information about the only Roundtable Compliance podcast around. Also, I hope you'll join us for the next episode where we continue the discussion between myself and Jonathan Armstrong. This is Tom Fox. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance.